Welcome to The Breach Files. The Breach Files podcast is designed to give you an insider's perspective on a major cybersecurity event. My name is Scott Harris, and I will be taking you through everything that I experienced, everything that I felt, all of my successes, and all of my failures uh, between the dates of March the 29th, 2016, and April the 11th of 2016. Because this is the inaugural episode of The Breach Files, uh, we're going to spend just a few minutes level setting on what the format of this is going to be and what the scope of this is going to be. And then we're also going to level set around some things that I'm going to do during the course of this podcast series and also some things that I'm not going to do during the course of this series. Now, as we start this series, because it's going to be me alone telling my story, I don't anticipate the length of each episode being any longer than 15 to 20 minutes. As we move through the end of the episodes, I do intend to bring in some additional people for interviews, and these are going to be people that went through this process with me, uh, some from inside the organization, some from outside the organization. But because of the the nature of that type of setup with the interview and the give and take and so on, uh, those episodes may be anywhere from 25 to 30 minutes, but I'd never anticipate this being longer than a 30-minute process. I also intend for this podcast to be a very informal type of podcast. Uh, I have never claimed to be a professional podcaster and probably will not be anytime soon. So there may be uh, various times during this podcast series that you hear me take a sip of water or something along those lines. And I'm completely okay with that because I am not here uh, to win any podcast awards. I'm here to get information that I have out that I personally feel does not get talked about enough. And that is how these cybersecurity events, also known as breaches, work on the inside. Now let's talk about a few things that I'm going to do during the course of this series and a few things that I'm not going to do during the course of this series. I am going to tell you my story, my thoughts and my feelings and my experiences and essentially how it changed me as a person, both professionally uh, and even personally after everything was all said and done. At times, this podcast may sound like an audiobook uh, because it is a story and there's information that I need to get out. Uh, and I'm well aware that that could be a factor here. Uh, I understand that perfectly, but that's really the only way I can get the information out is to tell the story just like that, a story. And then finally, before we dig into the actual content of the podcast itself, I'm not going to be revealing any company intelligence or uh, insider information around company proprietary intellectual property or anything along those lines. That is not the purpose of this podcast. This podcast is only for one thing and one thing only. That is to give outsiders uh, an insider's look and understand what the teams and directors and CISOs go through as they handle what has been commonly referred to in the public as a breach. So then, now that we have all of the main housekeeping things out of the way, let's get down to the business of what the podcast is for. March the 29th, 2016. 
That's a day that I will never forget as long as I live. The day began much like any other day that I had. I had a a fairly long list of meetings in front of me, uh, most of them around projects that were on our plate, things coming down the pike, maybe adjustments that needed to be made, and so on. There were a few meetings that I had that had to do with security-related issues from the previous night and some other things that we were working on and doing some investigations. That's fair. But nothing along the lines of what I was getting ready to experience. I was in the office of my CIO. It was somewhere around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and we were talking about things that we normally discuss, which typically related to hockey. Uh, He was a big fan of the Nashville Predators, as was I, and we were discussing some things that were going on during the season and and, uh, just general discussions like that. We did discuss a few things around projects, of course, but we tried to keep our meetings typically as light as possible unless something specific came up that was of a serious nature. And as fate would have it, the event of a serious nature would in fact arise on March the 29th, 2016. As we were finishing up our meeting, it was about 1.48 p.m. And I know the time exactly because I'm looking at a message that I received at that exact minute. And this message came from a vendor that I trusted implicitly. Uh, We had much of their security architecture deployed throughout our network, uh, and they did some additional monitoring for us as well. And uh, I received a text message from this particular vendor that said simply, need to talk to you ASAP, important company security issue, not a joke. My reply was, stand by. I remember thinking, this can't be good. And I knew it couldn't be good because I rarely heard from this particular vendor at such an unusual time. Most of the the times that we discussed things were around scheduled uh, minutes or or things of that nature. And so when I get a text out of the blue uh, and it says something along the lines of important security issue, that got my attention very quickly. And so... I looked at my CIO and I very graciously excused myself from his office. I didn't say anything to him about the message at that moment because I didn't want to start any four alarm fires unnecessarily. No reason to get in a panic over something that is not a panic situation. And I had no information. I had no idea what I was walking into. So um, I simply lightheartedly just excused myself and and, uh, moved out of the door and began to take the long walk down the hallway to my office. The hallway I had to to walk down was extremely long. It covered almost half the building. And then I had to make a right turn and then walk an additional several steps back to my office. I remember walking that path a little more quickly that day because of the nature of the text message I just received. I didn't want to incite a panic, so I didn't trot or, or walk excessively quickly. But it was faster than my normal pace, I'm sure, as I was a little bit apprehensive as to what I was going to find. Within a couple of minutes, I was sitting at my desk with the door closed, and I called this vendor and said, okay, what do you have for me? And he said, look, I'm not really sure what's going on. I don't really have any detailed information yet, but the company has called me and said we need to get a hold of Scott. There are some things that we see going on in his network that don't look too good from from our end. So at that point, we organized a conference call for about 10 or 15 minutes later, and I cleared out the remainder of my schedule for the day um, because I wasn't really sure what exactly I was walking into. One thing was for certain. 
a very palpable uneasiness had crept in, and I did not really understand at that point just how warranted those feelings were going to be. As I nervously jumped on the conference call, the bridge that had been created for us to uh, communicate and talk about what was going on, the first person that joined me was the vendor that had texted me the information a little bit earlier. That vendor was FireEye, uh, and FireEye essentially is a, a threat intelligence platform that is used to help organizations prevent and respond to cyber attacks as they happen. And uh, we had a fairly extensive FireEye deployment in our environment, and those devices worked quite well. Uh, in this particular instance, there had been some alerts that had come through that they had seen that they were concerned about, and they wanted to discuss those. And so the next people that joined were uh, Charles Carmackle, who was vice president at Mandiant uh, at the time. I think he still is, actually. Uh, and also Steve Elevitz. Steve Elevitz was a manager of security consulting services at the time. And then they had some respective team members, some analysts and others that were on as well that had been looking at the data. And so one of the first things that they asked me was, we know you saw some alerts in the FireEye NX going back uh, to, I think it was March the 7th. And I said that I had. Now, let me take a step back here and explain what that's about. On March the 7th, we had received some alerts from the FireEye NX appliances that there was some potentially malicious activity trying to go back to the internet. Uh, essentially, that means it's going out to a command and control server or a C2 server. These are servers or different types of resources that exist on the internet. And what they do is they, they house lots of other types of malware and various other types of threats so that whenever you click on a link or you open an attachment or interact with a threat in some way that has landed, in this case, in an email form, it actually goes back out and contacts that server and downloads those additional tools of compromise for threat actors to continue their business. We had seen this activity uh, on March the 7th, and uh, you know we did our normal activity. We took the devices. There were only two of them. We took the devices. We cleaned them, ran them through our normal techniques, uh, and by the way, those devices were not located in the same building as we were sitting in. They were located elsewhere in the United States, but we had procedures around that as well. And we did our normal things, and it looked to be clean. We didn't see any additional uh, information coming out from those devices, and so we put them back on the network because the threat didn't look to be anything beyond what we had seen before. So I had shared that with Charles Carmichael and the team, and essentially the, they came back and said, look, we know you went through your normal routine, and typically speaking, this is a good idea. However, this is not what you think it is. This is something a little bit different. At that point, I sort of sank in my chair a little bit because I remember thinking, okay, this is where things start to really turn south. Of course, my reaction was, okay, then explain to me exactly what's going on. At that point, Charles turned it over to Steve Elevitz, and Steve began to explain to me that the threat that we had seen had contained a different type of malicious content. Of course, that would be known as the Zero Day. This was a Word document that came in an email form, and inside that Word document, there were uh, some different tools of compromise, and then also reached back out to the command control server that I had mentioned before, 
And this particular um, software was known as Punch Buggy in Mandiant terms. So the short story of all of this, without getting too far off in the forensics weeds, is this. The threat actor sends in a couple of emails that contain this uh, attachment in a Word document that had a script in it that would reach back out to command control server on the internet to download additional tools of compromise. So the event looks something like this. The email comes in, the user gets the email, opens the email, interacts with the attachment, they open it up in Word, in other words, and as soon as they do that, that causes the script to be triggered. The script on the back end quietly uh, reaches out to the command control server and the additional tools are then brought down for the threat actor to use. At the same time, that also gives the threat actor remote access to both of those machines where the emails originally landed. Now, we were about 30 minutes behind this activity uh, in getting to cleaning the machines because of course, we have to get the users on the phone and they have to kind of finish up what they're doing and then we have to clean it and so on and then run a bunch of testing and all of this other stuff. However, by that point, the threat actor had already moved off of those two machines and had moved into other spots in the network uh, using things like PowerShell and uh, Putty. Now, how were they able to do this? One of the things they were able to do when they got on those machines was to elevate the credentials of the user that they had uh, commandeered by accessing this machine to that of domain administrator. What that means in an Active Directory world for Microsoft is, if you have domain administrator access, you pretty much have the keys to the kingdom. So then they were able to use PowerShell and, and Putty and whatever else to move around to pretty much any machine they wanted to because there's nothing really stopping them when you're a domain admin. Now, this is all within the segmentation part of the user network. So they had access, and this is probably the worst part, they had access to the domain controllers. And these are devices that really set the access policies and all these other things that control the network as far as who can do what, when, and where. They had direct access to that because to be able to apply those policies to a user, that user has to be able to uh, get to, the user machine has to be able to get to the, uh, the domain controller. So then naturally, whenever you have this access, immediately you're able to get to that, that domain controller and look around and see everything else that is there. Uh, they were using tools like InMap and some other techniques to really map out the network, see what the IP address scheme was, uh, what types of devices were on those network segments, and so on. And so it really was a very short order for them to uh, get in and see what they needed to see uh, and really do it in a very stealthy way. Another thing that they did early on in this process was establish two back doors into the network. The idea behind this is if they catch what we're doing in this particular section, we still have a couple of backdoors, or in other words, another way into the network using a different method. So they were already building redundancy for their access into the network in a very short period of time. And this brings about uh, a very interesting question. Some people in the FBI and other uh, places believe that these threat actors often will show a great deal of patience. And I think that's fair to say, depending on what they're trying to do. But uh, there are those that believe that the threat actors will hang out a little bit, take their time, and so on. I can tell you my experience has been a little bit different, and I think maybe it's because we were talking about payment card issues uh, here. Maybe that has something to do with it. But what I know is whenever they accessed our network, they did not let any grass grow. They were moving very quickly because I think the idea is 
we only have a certain amount of time before they find out what's going on and they'll shut us off. And we want to get these cards, get this all over to the, uh, the dark web and sell this stuff for a profit uh, before we get cut off from our access. So I'm sure there are situations where threat actors are very patient uh, once they have access into a network. But my experience, and not just mine, but in talking to some others that have experienced the same thing I did, is that when it comes to stealing money or stealing payment card information, often they move very quickly because they realize that sometimes they're on borrowed time and they want to maximize as much as they can before the door gets shut. So at this point, I want to take just a few minutes to uh, step away from the forensics and kind of the, the whole scope and scale and direction of what's going on here and finish off this first episode of the podcast by talking about where I was at emotionally, where I was at mentally, and everything that was going on to it from a personal perspective, because I really think that's the part that uh, people don't talk much about is how do directors and CISOs and managers or whatever the title is, how do they handle these situations and what do they feel? I can tell you at this point to say that I was um, a little bit in shock would be an understatement. Of course, you know when you go into this position that uh, this type of activity is always possible. It faces you every day. In fact, it faces you every minute of every day. There are no days off. Uh, even whenever you go on vacation, you're not completely on vacation. You've got one eye on your laptop or whatever device you're using and so on. And so now here I sit uh, in what had otherwise been a very successful career and I'm facing what is clearly a, a very difficult road ahead. Uh, I would definitely say that the first thing that came to my mind was um, catastrophic failure. Oh my gosh, I've completely face-planted on this job. This They've entrusted me to protect the data of this company, and I've been unable to do that. Those feelings were absolutely there, mixed by a lot of frustration around the fact that the way this had come into the network was something we already had underway, and we just didn't get to it in time. Coupled with anger, the fact that I was having to face this, and now there's a very uncertain future. You're not really sure what's going to happen uh, in a lot of different ways, including, of course, with your job. That's always uh, out there in, in the forefront as well. There was just a lot of emotions that were hitting me at the same time. So the first thing I had to do was take a step back. I had to back up and say, okay, hold on. I can't fix everything right now. I've got to calm myself, make sure that those around me, including my team, see only someone that is under control, that has a plan, that is working the problem rather than panicking in the problem and giving away to the emotion of the whole thing. I needed to make sure that I had control of myself and the situation, even sometimes when I really didn't. Uh, there were plenty of times in the early stages where I had no idea what I was doing. I was relying on Mandiant. I was relying on uh, other directors and CISOs that were friends of mine. And I was relying on the Federal Bureau of Investigation Cybersecurity Task Force, which uh, I will get to in the next episode. But for now, I will tell you that those initial feelings were, um, gosh, there was just so many of them that came through. I couldn't put verbiage around any one. There were so many different things that would hit within a matter of seconds of each other. And so it was a very confusing time, and I had to learn how to calm myself. And I will tell you in the next episode, 
a little bit how I went about doing that and how I had actually been preparing for that moment for quite some time. I anticipated that there may be something like this that would happen at some point, and I actually had not only an IRP or an incident response plan that was the official plan for the organization, but I also had my own IRP, my own incident response plan. That was things that I was going to do um, aside from the official plan to help in this situation, not just to bring it to a resolution, but also for myself. I will talk a little bit about that. Um, I will also learn a lot more about production going forward uh, as I get into this more and more. And we're going to do some interviews with some really cool people that were there for this whole thing. We're going to talk to them about their impressions of what happened as well. I hope you come back for the second episode. Should be a lot of fun. In the meantime, it's a very dangerous cyber world we live in. Stay safe out there. I'll talk to you next time. This is Scott Harris for The Breach Files. Have a good day.